Hello! Welcome to the Higher Education Researcher. This is a podcast by the Center for Higher Education Research and Evaluation at Lancaster University. My name is Olga Rotter, and my guest today is Adam Matthews. Adam is a postgraduate researcher in the process of completing his PhD at the University of Birmingham. Welcome and thank you very much for coming, Adam. Thank you for inviting me. Today we will be talking about Adam's paper, written in co-authorship with Ben Kodzi, in which they continue the critical discussion of the teaching excellence and student outcomes framework. They analyze one of its particularly controversial aspects, the provider submissions, that form the qualitative data used to determine the teaching excellence framework ratings. Adam, let me first of all ask you what is the teaching excellence framework and what are its officially stated purposes? Thanks, Olga. So, yeah, the Teaching Excellence Framework was um, came about, uh, the first results came about in 2017, and the official purpose of them was to uh, better informing student choices about what and where to study, raising esteem for teaching, recognising and rewarding excellent teaching, and better meeting the needs of employers, business, industry, and, and the professions. Yeah, the whole exercise in total culminated in institutions receiving gold, silver, or bronze awards for their, for their teaching excellence. And how they got to that result was an exercise whereby there was initial quantitative measures. So each institution went through a quantitative process where numbers were crunched. And some of those numbers came from the National Student Survey, the NSS. Mm-hmm. So that was all about student satisfaction. The destinations of leavers from higher education, so the DLHG survey, which basically says where do students go mm-hmm. and what employment do they receive. And then individualised student record data, which looks at kind of dropout rates and where mm-hmm. people go. So that gave an initial hypothesis. So at that stage, there would have been a gold, silver or bronze. The interesting bit and part of the paper that we were particularly interested in was institutions also had the opportunity to write a 15-page qualitative uh, submission, which told the, the Teaching Excellence Framework panel why their teaching was so excellent in response to a bunch of criteria. And those 15-page statements did have an influence, and we'll get into this in a bit more detail, where 34 institutions out of 232 were actually changed. So they really did have an impact, and um, they really are important, and, and they give us a lot of discourse to analyse. Thank you, Adam. In your paper, you argue that the TEF, in its current form, plays a key role in the marketization of higher education. Could you please elaborate on that idea? Sure. So, um, I think even the basics of that badge of gold, silver or bronze, a marketized kind of thing, you know, we can attach that to a kind of a competition. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot of controversy around the Teaching Excellence Framework. There was a lot of institutions that questioned the work that went into it and some of the measures. One of the big things was, we, it's called the Teaching Excellence Framework, and one of the big criticisms was it didn't analyse any kind of teaching. There was no, no, nobody went and watched any lectures, nobody any seminars, and it was kind of using existing data that was already there. And I think the opportunity post the Teaching Excellence Framework has really seen badges of teaching excellence, gold, silver or bronze, really promoted. So uh, another area of my study, another paper that I might touch on a little bit later as well. So we look at prospectuses and how um, students market their products to students. And if you look at some of those prospectuses post the results of the initial Teaching Excellence Framework in 2017, we can see lots of these kind of badges of gold, teaching excellence. So institutions were a little critical before, but as 
soon as they were given gold, maybe they maybe they weren't so critical. Mm -hmm. And it kind of changes the discourse as well. You often see the words teaching excellence now. So I think we can see this kind of policy instrument kind of still permeating the language that institutions use. So we were fairly critical of some of the stuff and other people have been critical of the teaching excellence framework. But I think it kind of is that wider kind of neoliberal knowledge economy kind of view. So that that marketization it's kind of a, a long embedded sort of nature of that and having an extra badge does that a bit more I think in terms of the marketization. So you basically say that this course becoming more neoliberal? Yeah I think so I think it probably adds to it I wouldn't say you know the teaching excellence framework is kind of a a big change it's part of a bigger kind of move really. Um, mm -hmm. I should mention as well I think so um, as I said at the start one of the one of the ambitions was to raise the esteem of teaching so I think mm -hmm. That the actual kind of idea behind it, the, there are people, and uh, I'm probably one of them, that would say, yeah, actually, you know, looking at teaching is probably a good thing. So we've got the research excellence framework in the UK, which is fairly embedded now that looks at the impact uh, of research. There wasn't anything about teaching, and there, there has been attention in the past. So uh, another area of interest for me is kind of that relationship between teaching and research. Mm -hmm. There are, there, are, there are certain people, and you know, it goes back to the history of, of the university, really, the modern university in Germany, where uh, von Humboldt said um, research and teaching should be should be integrated together, um, and that is what a university education is about. So I think when we kind of um, look at that and, and the relationship between the two, the actual purpose maybe of the teaching excellence framework is not all negative, trying to bring that parity, especially in research intensive universities who some students might say you know a lot of nss uh, data national student surveys data says that uh, maybe research is privileged over teaching and maybe you don't always get taught by the, the kind of star researchers you might be uh, taught by other people so mm -hmm. i think there's a tension there that um we can we can look at the teaching excellence framework on its own but there's also wider implications i think of, mm -hmm. of kind of what it means so Maybe it was well meant, but maybe some of those uh, unintended consequences have, have come out a, a bit deeper as well. Thank you very much, Adam. Continuing the theme of marketization of higher education, I want to ask you about the future of teaching quality debates. In your paper, you suggest that in the future, university discourse around teaching quality will continue to be dominated by employability theme rather than discourse around, for instance, social goods, personal development or equity. Why do you anticipate the future of teaching quality debates in that way? Yeah, so as I say, I think it's a, a sustained policy position. So I think mm -hmm. it kind of reiterates much of what what has already gone before. So um, I think within the kind of global pattern of higher education, we've got increased numbers and more and more people are getting undergraduate and postgraduate degrees, which means there's a funding issue. So the more people that go to a university, so I mentioned um, Villa von Humboldt earlier and his idea of a university in, in kind of the early 19th century. Of course, it's very different now. There's, there's not a group of elite people going to university and we kind of encourage, you know, the more people that go to university as higher education researchers, I think we, we all advocate that. But there is a funding issue, of course, and when uh, a national government w funds university, that they, they do want to see an outcome. So, yes, we're kind of critical of the, of, the, of the big employment and employability aspects of the TEF. But I think what can happen is we can often end up with two dualisms where we get into this situation where we say, no, it shouldn't be about employability and it should all be social goods um, 
and social justice. I think there probably is a coming together of the, of the two of those. Mm-hmm. And um, as I say, I've kind of, I kind of look into kind of the history of the modern university as well. And um, there's the, 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 the big the big kind of book that a lot of people look to is the idea of a university by uh, Cardinal, Cardinal Henry Newman. And he was a person who was very much against employability in higher education, but he mm-hmm. kind of flipped it. I think his view was you go to university, you learn about the world, you learn about stuff, going back to Humboldt, you know, uh, interact with, with researchers in their field, experts in their field, and then you go out into the world and you kind of, you, and, and Newman's idea was once you've gone through that, that that experience of higher education, you can kind of go and do anything. You can go and kind of shape the world and shape your own world within a job. So I think my own kind of perspective on this is we shouldn't sort of reject employability but we're kind of looking at that whole citizenship a little bit more. So a key theme of the teaching excellence framework, when you, when you, when, when, when we look at the analysis that we did in this paper, it's, it's just the dominance of employability. I think it's that employability and outcomes first and not some of the other things that, that a whole idea of teaching excellence might, might come up with. Mm-hmm. So what do you think about the future of that counter narrative discourse uh, on uh, social goods, public goods and equity? Do you think it will start to emerge in parallel with the emergence of the discourse on employability and um, economics of higher education? I think it will always be there, and I think mm-hmm. it probably always has been there. I think um, there's, there's, there's a kind of tension there, and there's a kind of a, a discourse around if you're paying, if you as an individual are paying to go to university, or if the government are paying for you to go to university, people want to see an outcome and an end. Mm-hmm. which gets into a very simple kind of cause and effect, which in some ways this kind of exercise does. So you pay your £9,000 a year, which guarantees you uh, a job in the employment market. Of course, the employment market is is very is very uh, changeable uh, and we, we haven't got a crystal ball to know what's going to happen. So if you are lucky enough to graduate and there's a lot of uh, graduate jobs out there, you will go on and gain those jobs. If mm-hmm. you potentially graduate this year, for example, uh, during a global pandemic, there's probably not so many jobs out there. So we, we kind of can put that back to the teaching excellence framework. And one of the big criticisms around employability and kind of measuring universities on employment is that they have got no, they've got no control or no power mm-hmm. over what they, that, they, that market looks like. And also, um, I think there's a real difficulty for universities to kind of, um, to give students the skills on, I mean, the, the term employability, you know, there, there's not, there's been a lot of criticism in literature around, well, what does that actually mean? What does employability look like? I think a lot of the discourse comes from businesses who say students aren't work ready, but with them, we can ask the question, well, whose responsibility is that? Whose responsibility is it to, um, to make students work ready? That's kind mm-hmm. of a difficult job for a university because every business is different, different industries are different. So maybe that's their responsibility, but maybe a university's responsibility is to create a rounded citizen who becomes, you know, an expert in their field potentially, um, which is a much easier job for a university than it is to kind of get someone ready for work. But the, the, of course, there's a balance there, and mm-hmm. that's something that needs to be. I think going back to going back to your question in terms of the discourse around it, I think often the discourse that dominates is degree, get a job. That's mm-hmm. kind of it. So I think universities have got a responsibility, and us as higher education researchers have got 
a responsibility to push back the narrative sometimes and kind of say, well, actually, this this is complicated and there's, there's other aspects to this. Um, so, yeah, so I think um, hopefully it won't continue as much, but I think there's, there's, a, there's a kind of a role for us to shine a light on that discourse. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Adam. You already touched a little bit about the potential impact of COVID on these processes. Do you think the COVID pandemic might put a halt on this type of marketization of higher education? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, to see, I think at the start of the pandemic, I think everyone was saying, well, the whole world is going to change and we're not going back to an old normal, we've got a new normal, was was the thing that everyone's saying. In terms of policy, I think um, higher education has come under, certainly from a UK context, higher education has come under um, a bit of a spotlight from the government. So just kind of as we speak now, the TEF um, is probably going to be reviewed and changed in the future. There's been a, an independent review being waited for by uh, Dame Shirley Pierce that kind of hasn't arrived. You know, there's been a long wait for it. And, uh, and just this morning, um, there's kind of a, a change around the government is saying about NSS, about the National Student Survey. That may change as well, which does feed into TEF. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of changes happening politically. In terms of the pandemic, I think it's it's really interesting, some of the, the discourse around education. So we've kind of gone from this this, this dualism between online and face-to-face education. So I think uh, another area of interest for me is technology and education and how it's changing education. Mm-hmm. So, so in the media, the media um, didn't really used to give a lot of a lot of attention. Maybe universities didn't give a lot of attention to kind of technology and edu- in education, how it would change it. Um, but it's kind of been front and centre. And, and there's a, there's a strange kind of contradiction that's, that's taking place if you watch the news and, and read the media. Certainly in the UK, this is kind of what I've observed. That dualism between face-to-face and online, you get you get two different aspects. So there are a lot of people, maybe kind of people who are making predictions about the future, maybe who work at technology companies, maybe they're technologists who will say that it's going to change education forever. The technology and certainly fueled by the pandemic, it will change. Uh, and the other side of the coin, if you like, uh, we've also got kind of this discourse that in the media that an online degree should cost less. So the, certainly in the UK, we've got the BBC who will, will run stories about the, the upcoming, the upcoming um, term starting. Students will be saying things like, we, we're paying full tuition fees for online learning. So there's a kind of a discourse here that it's a second best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So on one hand, we've got technologists saying it's going to change education forever and we're going to revolutionise this thing. But then some universities and students and, and the general media are saying, well, if it's all online, you should be paying less. So I guess we get into the marketization thing there of uh, I'm paying for this and it shouldn't be as much. Those people who work in online education, I think, would probably say, you know, it costs more potentially to create really good online learning. You know, putting lectures online and video in lectures is one thing, but doing a really good job in making it online would probably cost more. So I think there's a there's a kind of a a battle going on which was probably happening anyway i think it was kind of happening between the kind of different perspectives on online education but i think that's really kind of accentuated a lot there was an article in the times higher education where there was a new vc at a university saying the lecture is dead and again it's probably an argument that's been had you know for hundreds of years probably you know the lecture is dead i think it's quite interesting to look outside of, of education and look at kind of society in general and if you look at TED Talks, podcasts, 
this kind of thing. These these are huge, and certainly in the pandemic, everyone has released a podcast. So Spotify signed a huge deal with Michelle Obama, for example, around a podcast. And a podcast, in essence, is a radio show, right? It's just recorded. We're we're recording one now. You know, we're 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 having a conversation. It's going to be distributed, but it's still a really great kind of learning tool, kind of media tool. So there's there's this kind of dualism as well there again. I think, but similarly to the media industry, I think if you look at um, journalism, I think journalists in the early 2000s uh, and it's early newspapers, they made the decision to give away their content for free because it was online. So there's this discourse of everything online is free and it, we kind of get into the marketization thing there if people see online things as being free or maybe a cheaper version of. So that there's, a, there's a real complexity going on, I think, in terms of the future. And that does feed, if, we, if we're looking at the teaching excellence framework in terms of teaching, I think we're seeing a, a, a huge kind of spotlight being being put onto that and who is going to who is going to come out on top of that and is it going to be totally different who knows um another paper of mine that, that i said i might mention uh we've got part-time uh, undergraduate higher education um, and kind of the discourse around that in prospectuses and actually so well the, the actual data around part-time higher education a lot a lot less people do it now uh, it, there's been a huge dip in the UK in it, um, despite huge amounts of technology. So in that paper, we talk about the 1960s, where um, there was lots of a similar discourse that we're talking about now. And this was all about radio and television. So we have radio, we have television, we can take education to people. We can take education into people's homes. And that was with radio and television. Maybe there's a similarity there with the podcast with radio. But it didn't quite happen. So education didn't change. So uh, 2012 as well, uh, the New York Times quoted um, 2012 was going to be the year of the MOOC. So the massive open online course. Uh, as I'm sure, you know, people listening to this will know, it hasn't really happened either. So it hasn't changed higher education that much. We offer these small little online courses. But the data around them says it tends to be people who have already got a degree. The kind of social justice aspect hasn't hasn't been met. So you look at the 60s and then with radio and television, you look at kind of now, sort of eight years ago, the year of the MOOC in 2012, still... We still have undergraduate degree for three years at the age of 18 on campus is the norm. Is, is a six-month lockdown pandemic going to change? Maybe it will, maybe it won't, but I'm a, a little bit sceptical. And if we look mm -hmm. at kind of things that have happened in the past, we might say that um, that, that hasn't happened. But I am, I'm sort of a, I am a proponent of using technology, certainly for, mm -hmm. for widening participation and kind of lifelong learning. There's, there's definitely opportunities there, but... Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll see how that plays mm -hmm. out. I'm not, I'm not one for making predictions of that. Thank you for your expert opinion, Adam. Now I want to move to the discussion of your methods. In your data analysis, you use the methods of corpus linguistics, which might not be the most common in higher education policy research. Could you please summarize this approach and also tell us why did you choose it? So going back to kind of what we were saying earlier about digital technologies, digital technologies has produced this huge amount of information coming towards us, right? So um, mm -hmm. we wanted to look at the teaching excellence framework uh, very, very broadly. If you look at the submission, there's 200, in 2017, there was 232 15 page submissions from universities in response to the teaching excellence framework, those qualitative submissions that we spoke about. That makes 1.7 million words. We were never going to read all of those. So um, I'm sure lots of effort went into writing these submissions, but they're not particularly, you know, great reads in terms of reading all of them. So we needed something else. And 
Corpus Linguistics offers that. So Corpus Linguistics, um, as, as, as the term says, is traditionally used in linguistics. It's It's got a, quite a, a rich history, certainly at Lancaster uh, mm-hmm. and both at Birmingham. So kind of in the uh, in the sort of 1950s and 60s there was a movement that looked looking at big bodies of text so a corpus of text number of texts that are then computationally analyzed we're pretty lucky now in the in 2020 we can download software and we've also got the computational power so the the computer that i'm working on today has got the power to to do this kind of analysis so we, we, we've got this as an opportunity um corpus linguistics uh, generally looks at kind of language use um so there's lots of um lots of corpus out there that you can download so there's the british national corpus that looks at language being used in speech uh and, and also in media and that kind of thing. However, we, we use corpus linguistics, linguistics to construct our own corpus, and that was using the test submissions. Mm-hmm. I think the great thing about corpus linguistics, and I should also mention, um, there's probably other fields that use different words for a very, very similar thing. So computer science, uh, people may have heard of natural language processing, NLP. So this is becoming more and more popular now with machine learning and artificial intelligence, chatbots, for example. So you may, you may, you may, um, go onto a website, have a chatbot pop up and it's all automated. And it kind of learns what, what you're talking about. So there's similarities there, but we kind of went with the traditional corpus linguistics which basically looks at word frequencies uh collocations so you can take a keyword and look at the words that are either side and also concordance lines so you take a keyword and you can see that in context so we use that basically because uh those 1.7 million words we would never read um but it gives us a kind of a route into it and um there's a researcher at lancaster university called paul baker who looks at uh, corpus linguistics and he uh, uses the term in a lot of his literature to map the corpus. So you take a huge corpus and you do a bit of an analysis and it kind of starts to give you a few ideas and a few things that throw up. So I, I quite like it as a method because it's quite exciting. So you've got this bunch of words sitting there and you can go and look for keywords. You can look at different patterns that probably wouldn't emerge just, just by reading two or three documents. Mm-hmm. And in the context of this, this study, we kind of went in with a more inductive approach. We had, um, the 232 submissions, but there was, as I mentioned earlier, there were some that were upgraded. So it gave us a really, really nice study where we've got 232 submissions, 33 of those submissions were upgraded to a, a better TEF rating. So, you know, from bronze to silver or silver to gold. So we could take those and we could compare them with the ones that didn't get upgraded. So you can kind of see this quantitative analysis uh, coming through. Um, and, it, and it gave that opportunity. Personally, um, the, 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 so the criticism, I suppose, of corpus linguistics, people will say, all right, you're just counting words. Yeah, so that, that that certainly is the criticism. So I think beyond looking at big sort of patterns, which can, you know, the, the people who work, you know, people who specialise in corpus linguistics look at some fantastic sort of visualisations and how patterns emerge. Um, Twitter is a big one. So there are lots of researchers who look at Twitter and scrape Twitter for kind of public opinion and that kind of thing. What I would what my own personal view is, is you can take the huge corpus, map it, and then you can get a bit more qualitative. So if you can see a pattern emerging, and you can go and dip into the text and actually read them and do a more traditional discourse analysis. Thanks a lot, Adam. And now please uh, tell us about your main findings. Yeah, so describing that kind of 
it, that's quite neat, right? We've got 232 submissions, take 33 of them away and we can compare them. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, it, it can be a lot messier than that. And I think it, it is messy. So just going back to that quantitative perspective, um, I, would, I would cast myself as a qualitative researcher, but this is a tool to use. So this study was particularly a bit more straightforward than some of the others in terms of you, you take those two comparisons and the, the, the key words that really shone out when comparing those were employment, employability, student outcomes and research. Those four words, if generally, you know, from a quantitative basis, if you use those words more, you, you got upgraded. So if you talk about those things, you get upgraded. So employment and employability, we've kind of spoken about that. So um, a, big, a, big, a big factor, really, in terms of teaching excellence framework. There are people that say, or people who criticise this method might say, "Well, you know, the submissions are there to to, to meet an end, to meet to meet um, what what the, the the panel want to hear." I kind of would criticise that a little bit and say, "Well, actually, I think this can pervade this. If you constantly talk about an undergraduate degree being directly correlated to a job, that can change what higher education is for." and possibly teaching as well so i think there's a there's a risk there that when we look at policy instruments and policy effects that can really creep in so going back to um to stephen ball and his work on policy uh, at the start of the century he he kind of his quote that i always use and sticks out is um uh, we don't speak policy policy speaks us and i think this is a good example where it can kind of just become embedded and become that thing so employment and employability can become kind of the primary focus which as we as we've spoken about previously mm-hmm. you know we, we, we might challenge that from a social justice but from just kind of the identity of higher education mm-hmm. um, and student outcomes sim, sim, similar similar kind of approach really i suppose it becomes a bit, bit more broad but actually when you look at the data that was used for the test student outcomes basically means kind of what salaries people earn and that is a that's that comes through quite a lot in policy and sort of the office for students do a lot of work around this around if you do this degree you'll get paid this amount of money which again is kind of quite a reductive kind of cause and effect which we know is you know we, I think in higher education research we can identify that, that it's much more complicated than that moves were going forward to look at a subject level TEF so these TEF results that we're talking about in this paper and what we've discussed on the podcast is um, institutional level. So this is teaching excellence at an institutional level, which we can problematize as well, because if we work in huge uh, institutions, you know, there's such a broad variety of disciplines. Uh, so for example, in my institution, at one side of the campus, you've got a medical school, at the other side, you've got um, a school of education, which are very, very different. So they kind of all bunched together. So the plan was to do a subject level TEF, I think that may well be on hold uh, but again this kind of looks at different degrees and what and what those graduates are paid which i think you yeah. know there's a lot of criticism around that in, in not just in, in, in what i've done but in, in the literature uh, and, and interestingly the keyword research so that fourth one i think that that is really really interesting because um that gets into it well why was research so important and i think it comes that universities will still talk about research as being really important to their institution as an identity which when we then look at the relationship between teaching and research there's a there's a, there's a complexity there where people say it's complementary people say it, they kind of divide and they're, 
they kind of split the institution and there are people who teach and there are people who research. Going back to von Humboldt and that kind of idea that he, that he innovated by saying, uh, we'll do research and we'll do teaching, but they're very, very closely linked and the people who do the research will do the teaching. Institutions have got the ref, the research, the research excellence framework to kind of juggle, but now they've got the TEF and, 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 and there's a little bit of attention there. So I think that's interesting. But in terms of this study, I think research, it was a, it was a kind of a, a credential. You know, we do re, we're a research institution, we're a research environment. And that kind of automatically means uh, teaching is excellence, which people have criticised in the past and, uh, and, and critiqued as I've spoken about. So yeah, that, those were the main findings. And then we, as, you, as you say, we kind of, based on those keywords, then we dig down a little bit deeper in that to show some examples and kind of look at some of the patterns that were involved there. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much, Adam. Based on your knowledge and uh, your research results, what do you think are the potential tensions that can be created with the introduction of the teaching excellence framework? Yeah, so um, as we said at the start, one of the um, one of the one of the aims of the TEF was to raise the esteem of teaching, which which is great. I think everyone kind of agrees that that's that's definitely uh, something that universities um, would should be doing or want to be doing. So going from um, different career paths. So often um, research and teaching, a, a research and teaching role is seen as, as more premium or more, more senior than someone who takes a teaching, teaching only route. And I think that's, that's something that institutions are looking at. So I think there are the different career pathways that people look at, you might want to specialize in one or, or do one for a particular time and then come together. Um, but there's also a tension there between research and teaching. And again, this is not something that's particularly new. Uh, so there's a, there's a really big, broad kind of research area that looks at the research and teaching nexus, they call it. So some people don't know the term nexus, but you know, it's this coming together of research and, research and teaching. And there's, there was quite a few quantitative studies done sort of in the 90s that looked at the relationship between research and teaching and whether they're complementary and whether they're not. And, it, and it's quite a complex kind of idea, but I think it becomes a real tension and when we kind of start talking about teaching is all about employability and then we say well where does research come in the university we kind of get this big kind of big grand question i suppose of what is the university for which i think as higher education researchers and kind of in my phd that's kind of what i'm interested in what within discourse what how do we construct that how do we construct the idea of a university and if you look at it, it's kind of simplest terms. Research creates knowledge and produces knowledge and teaching kind of distributes and dis disseminates that. But if those two are severed and teaching is all about employment, rather than bringing them together uh, as, as, as equals, they can kind of be, be, be broken apart. And there's, there's an area of research called the unbundled university, which I think is quite it's quite interesting. So again, this is something that's kind of been bubbling around for a while where different things are done differently in different parts of the university. And it's not, it's not a kind of everybody does everything. So the academic role, for example, so I've kind of touched on it there. So is the academic role research and teaching or is it just research potentially? Or is it just teaching or do you focus on different aspects of that? And I think when you throw technology into that as well that we spoke about, you know, it, it changes the academic role. So it puts a lot of pressure on the academic role to be a researcher, a teacher, a technology expert. 
so that there are other roles that come into the university, but that creates tensions in itself. So um, some technology experts may may talk of technology changing education, which an academic may not agree with. So these tensions kind of all, all build up a little bit, um, but it kind of goes a bit wider. So that's kind of, we, we were interested in, in researching the TEF and kind of the outcomes of it and, and how it affected, but also those broader questions, how it embeds these different tensions that, we, that we've seen in the past. And I think if we kind of take that simple view that teaching is just for employment, that creates a massive tension that we've researched. And I think we need to kind of bring those two together if we can. Not necessarily everyone has to do research and do teaching, but as part of a mission of an institution, those are the two things that they may do or they may not choose to, but it, that all comes out in the discourse as well. And it kind of permeates kind of public opinion of what the university is for. And then we kind of get into that when we're paying fees. What is it for? Is it just for getting a job? So yeah, there's, there's, there's complexities there and lots of uh, different tensions, just just like the kind of discourse around technology. Well, is it a cheap option or is it is it going to enhance and change education for the future? Mm-hmm. Thank you very much, Adam, for your presentation. And I wish you all the best with your further research and hopefully we'll see you here in the future. So- Definitely, yeah. I'd love to come back and talk about any new work that we're doing. It was Adam Matthews and the higher education researcher. Have a good day.